Cool. All right. Do you want to talk your normal so I can see your spikies in the thingies? The spikies in the thingies? Yeah, I just want to make sure we're on the same vibe. Are we vibing? Are we vibing? Are we vibing? Are we vibing? Ooh, vibe. Yeah, we're vibing. Awesome. I love it when we be vibing. And welcome to episode 121 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, what's up, girl? You know, not much. Just uh, living the dream or something like it. Living the dream every goddamn day. Yep. I didn't say what kind of dream it was. Yep. But it is a dream Uh, uh, of some kind. Perhaps a little bit more nightmarish, <laughs> depending on the day. But uh, this last weekend, uh-huh. I had not as much going on. Um, had some uh, weird anxiety feelings and stuff, and I channeled it into two very important things. Okay. I set up my hot tub. Fuck yeah. So that is ready to go. Yeah. And I aggressively ripped up a bunch of roots from my yard. I mean, that's what you have to do with your anxiety. Because, like, it it doesn't go away. Yep. You just got to channel it into something that will make you feel like you've accomplished something. So we have these popple trees in our yard. Uh Uh-huh. And the roots go everywhere. And once they get big enough, they sprout little, like, mini trees from them, from the roots. Yeah. In them, like, throughout the yard. And you're like, nah-uh. I don't even care so much about that, but I'm worried about it. I don't know if this is a reasonable thing to worry about, but I know I've seen roots like rip up through concrete, right? Mm-hmm. And all I can think is like, these are really close to my house. I don't want them going into it. So I'm just like going around the house, finding where all these roots are and ripping them up so they don't get anywhere near the foundation of my house. I mean, I don't know that that's a reasonable it might, worry. It might be a little extreme, but I still think it's reasonable. And it was, and you know what? It felt good. Afterwards, I was, like, carrying them around, and I was waving them at Sean. I was like, ooh, because they were, like, tentacles. (laughs) Spooky roots. (laughs) Pretty much. These trees are dead now. (laughs) How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I've I've been a little ball of energy because for the first time in literally three weeks, I actually feel okay. So I've been like dancing around the house. Like my voice still sounds kind of silly, but I've been dancing around the house. I've been singing and jumping up and down. And Steve's like, okay, so this is you feeling better? I was like, better? Not great, but better. (laughs) Love it. And Ben Paddle's festiversary was fantastic. So got to see some friends. I saw some photos that looked badass. Yeah, I didn't take a single photo while I was there. You were enjoying the moment. I was. I used to, I you know, before I had to just take pictures of everything and document everything. And now sometimes I do that. But a lot of times I'm just like, no, I'm just going to enjoy this. Hell yeah. And not share it with people. Hell yeah. Personal joy. Don't need to share everything. 
Exactly. exactly. Sharing is caring, but so is keeping some things to yourself. Well, and I was sharing the moment with my friends there. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, I have a story this week. It's a little shorter. Okay. But I think it's going to prompt some good conversation. I love conversation prompters. Yay. So, before we get started on that, uh, should we get a little word from our, our sponsors? Yeah, let's crack into it. And we're back. Yes. Yes, we are. So I have a kind of mode of transportation style story. Uh, okay. I don't well, know. You know, you know, well, you know how I like to talk about <laughs> planes, trains, automobiles. Yeah. Is it like a buggy that someone's like carrying? No, <laughs> like it's pulling. It's kind of a ghost ship. Kind of a ghost ship. You will see what I mean. Okay. So today I'm going to talk to you about the death ship of Platte River in Wyoming, also known as the Wyoming Ship of Death. Oh, shit. So the Platte River is a tributary of the Missouri River, which itself is a tributary of the Mississippi River, which flows down into the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a big chain of water. Water, okay. The Platte is one of the most significant tributary systems in the watershed of Missouri, draining a large portion of the central Great Plains in Nebraska to the eastern Rocky Mountains in Colorado and Wyoming. The River Valley played an important role in the westward expansions of the United States, providing the route for several major immigrant trails, including Oregon, California, Mormon, and Bozeman trails. Basically pointing out that this is a large river system. It's well-traveled. There's reasons for people to be by it. Okay. There is a section of the Platte River between Torrington and Alcova, Wyoming, where a legend persists that an omen of death can be found in the waters. Gasp. Gasp. Known as the Death Ship of Platte River, this phantom ship rises out of a strange mist that quickly becomes a massive rolling ball of fog. What? As the ship grows closer, witnesses report that its sails and masts are covered with frost. The crew, also covered with frost, stand upon its deck and huddle around a corpse lying on a canvas sheet. The legend continues that the ship always foreshadows the death of someone who will die on the day it is spotted. If you are one of the unlucky few to witness the ship, you may find that as it gets closer, the huddled crew steps away from the corpse, revealing the deceased's identity to be somebody that you know. (gasps) This sounds a lot like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. Like the vibe, it rolls in with a mist, and then there are all these dead soldiers, except for instead of being, you know, warm, because it's the Caribbean, they're all covered in frost. Because it's mountainous. Yeah. The first person to report this doom ship was a fur trapper named Leon Weber in 1862. At first, Leon did not know exactly what he was looking at. He thought it was just a strange fog. Curious, he went down to throw a stone in the fog because that is Why such not? a such a such boy a, thing. <laughs> it's such it's just such a human thing to do, honestly. You're like, I don't know what this is. Let's throw rocks at it. He's lucky that this wasn't like Stephen King's The Mist and there wasn't a demon that like tentacled him out, pulled him right into that mist. So he was as he got near, he could see the ship forming out of this fog and coming towards him. Okay. His dog began whimpering behind him. (laughs) And as the ship grew nearer, he could see people on deck. As the people moved out of the way, 
he saw what looked like his fiancée, Margaret Stanley. She appeared to be sleeping on a canvas sheet. Eventually, it could be seen that she was not sleeping. She was dead. Puzzled and frightened, Weber turned and ran, putting as much distance as possible between him and the shoreline. According to this tale, the day that he witnessed this fearful sight was the very same day his fiancée died. Not Margie. <laughs> Wait, no, did you say that this was, like, it, it has masts? Yes, because it's, it's a sailing ship. How did it get that far inland? I mean, it, I guess, like, you know, the, the Great Lakes and then down the, oh my gosh, what am I talking about? The aquarium explained this to me. <laughs> they they have the Sioux locks. <laughs> I mean, of all of this, I like that that's, that's your issue. We've talked about phantom trains that roll in when there are no tracks, like 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 all of, and it's just like, how did this ship get there? Like <laughs> it's not it, it rolled in out of a mysterious fog, dear. That's no, how I, it got well, there. I mean, the implication <laughs> is that it, it had once been a real ship, I assume. How did it get there? <laughs> Maybe that's why it's there in ghostly form because they didn't get very far and then they sank. The next reported sighting was from a cattleman named Gene Wilson in 1887. He was working outside, led his cattle along the riverbanks when he saw the strange fog coming out on the river. His dog barking at it suddenly is what caught his attention. A lot of dogs in this story too. He, well, I mean, a fur trapper and a cattleman, it makes sense that they'd have a doggo with them. That does, yeah. He wanted to investigate, but his horse refused to get closer to the water. So he had to tie it to a tree and walk closer by foot. The ship came out of the fog, and he saw a body laying on the deck. A closer look revealed, quote, the face of a woman who seemed to be terribly burned. Oh. And this is a report from supposedly from Gene Wilson himself. Okay. In spite of the frightfully scarred face, I recognized my wife. Overcome with terror, I screamed and covered my eyes, unquote. Okay, I'm sorry. Why is it always the women who die? What kind of a sexist-ass ship is this? <laughs> when he returned home later after his long day working with his cattle, he found that his wife had passed away when their house was overtaken by a fire. And then in 1903, the latest report we have of this sighting, uh, there was a local man named Victor Hebe, who had been a witness for hired gun Tom Horn at his murder trial in Cheyenne. So Victor was living by the Platte River. He reported what he saw when he was outside of his yard chopping down a tree. Okay, if this is another lady, I'm going to be pissed. Oh my God, just let me tell the story. Okay, I'm just saying. He was taking a break. And he was smoking when the mist started gathering. He thought it was strange for such a strange fog to gather on the nice fall day, seemingly out of nowhere. And when the ship came near enough for him to make out further details, Victor said he saw both the ship as well as the crew covered in frost. Unlike the other two witnesses, he didn't see anyone laying on a table. He saw the hanged body of his friend dangling from the cross arm of a gallows. Hebe had checked his watch, which read 3.15, which was the time of horns hanging on that very day. So though he's not a believer in the death ship, researcher Joel Nickel does verify that a Tom Horn 
was hanged for the ambush murder of 14-year-old Willie Nickel after he was mistaken by Horn for his sheep-herding father. This was uh, during the Wyoming Range Wars, and Horn was a hired gun for cattle barons. Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say that the guy that was hanged killed his son? So, no. Thinking that it was his dad? So, no, 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 no. So, he killed a 14-year-old who he had mistaken for the 14-year-old's father. Okay, so he was going to kill someone anyway. He was going to kill somebody anyway, but he actually killed a 14-year-old, and people are like, why are you doing this? And it sounds like this was during a period where a lot of this type of stuff was happening, so maybe it wouldn't have been taken as seriously if he had killed a grown man, but he killed a 14-year-old boy. Okay. Okay. According to the article in the Skeptical Inquirer, a book titled... Haunted Places, the National Directory summarizes the three alleged personal accounts presented by someone named Gaddis. Gaddis claims these accounts were originally gathered by something called the Cheyenne Bureau of Psychological Research. The first two quoted in their entirety are signed by the witnesses. So the first one was from Leon and the second one was from the cat, the cattle guy. No, is it psychological or is it, or is it cyclical? It said psychological in okay. the in the because I pulled that directly from there. Okay. I psychical psychical research. No, is, this is psychological. Okay. Like they're trying to like the skeptical inquirer is trying to say that they're they tried to say they pulled from a legit thing. Oh. Okay. And then the last one is told in Gaddis's own words, featuring quotes from the witness. Okay. So in this point, he's just pointing out that these are supposed to be. You know, eyewitness reports, except for the last one, which was reported from Gaddis's own words, not an eyewitness report. Mm, hearsay. Yeah, exactly. Gaddis concluded his entry with, quote, Perhaps it should be added that Mr. Hebe did not know that the phantom vessel had appeared twice before until he was asked by the Bureau to file his own account of his weird experience. Three times the phantom ship of Platt, under sail and coated with glittering ice, has emerged from out of the deep. When it will appear again is a tale of gruesome tragedy, unquote. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I personally would like to not see it. Although I have to say, I've got pretty poor eyesight. And so if a ship was like way out in the middle of the river, I don't think I'd be able to see who was on it <laughs> and be like, oh yeah, that burnt person. Like does kinda it? Kind of looks like Kayla. <laughs> Why am I dead? <laughs> I don't know. It gives you right in front of me and you were the first. It can't be Steve. So- I'm not going to kill him then, off. Then the, <laughs> argument becomes, then the argument becomes, like, would I die if you didn't see me and recognize me as the person witnessing the ship? I'm going to go ahead and say no. That way everyone I love gets to live. Okay, well, the skeptical Inquirer author, Nickel, likened this to dream clairvoyance. Okay. And then, of course, as the skeptical inquirer is likely to do, went on to talk about ways that it's disproved. But that's not what I'm going to do here because paranormal podcast. So I thought it would be a good lead in to discuss dream clairvoyance in an extremely small summary style. We're not going too in depth here. That may be for another day because it did lead to some interesting stuff. Oh, I love interesting things. In parapsychology, a clairvoyant dream is a dream depicting events that appear to be confirmed by later happenings or knowledge. Per a 2020 article by Nicole Rose on Medium.com, 
Psychic dreams are more common than you might think. If you look back through scientific studies over the years, you will actually find journal articles of scientists attempting to understand the phenomena around psychic dreams slash precognitive dreams. Mm -hmm. They have not had much success trying to figure out an explanation for this phenomenon. Dream workers around the world, so people who are familiar with this and embrace this phenomena itself, Mm -hmm. have come to recognize some clear telltale signs that indicate when a dream is psychic. One overall agreed sign of a psychic dream, regardless of what category they fall into, is that they have a strong, visceral feeling to them. You feel like it's really happening. Like, have you ever had one of those dreams where you wake up and you seriously question whether or not, like, I've had the most boring-ass dreams, but I wake up and question if they really happen because that's how strong it felt. Yeah, I really hate the ones where I'm at work and I'm (laughs) doing work and I wake up, I get ready, I go to work, I do eight hours of work, and then I wake up and I'm like, God damn it, I just did this. (laughs) (laughs) So not every psychic dream will be in color, but most are. Or your dream may seem faded or in like black and white even, except for a single object or scene that stands out in bright color. Oh, And that part specifically will contain psychic overtones. Those are experienced through the nature of the dreamer and the idea being that whatever is in the bright color versus everything else being faded is what's supposed to stand out to you. That seems very uh, movie director. Very Pleasantville. Yes. Yes. In addition to these generalized traits... The following categories of psychic dream types will have added unique traits of their own. You may also experience an overlap of more than one type. For existence, you could have a precognitive dream where you also receive telepathic communication. So here, first up, we've got what are called precognitive dreams. The central message of the dream will tend to repeat itself in different ways, often three times or in three different forms of the same theme within the dream. Or you wake up and fall back to sleep only to find yourself back in the same dream scene repeating itself. Author Denise Lynn has a book titled In the Hidden Power of Your Dreams, and she says that precognitive dreams will almost always have a round object somewhere within the dream. Interesting. Like it could be spherical like a ball or a globe, or it could be round like a mirror, um, the wheel of a car, a plate, something like that. Yep. Anything as long as it's round. And the round object will also tend to stand out so that the dreamer's attention is drawn to it. Does she say why it's round? Nope. It's just, that's I didn't a- across all these studies, round seems to be the thing that sticks out. And as I said, that's, that's why. That's so crazy. That's why I'm not, I was thought it was worth a conversation, but I wasn't going to dig too far into it because this does seem like something we could turn an entire, you know, section into at some point. Bananas, yo. Next, there are telepathic dreams. This is when you receive telepathic communication from someone else through your dream state. That is something where you could just be the receiver of it. Somebody like uh, somebody thinks something and then you wake up and you find out that you knew something that they never told you. Okay. Can't. Or it could be like the Buffy Angel thing where they appear in each other's dreams and they see each other and recognize each other. Okay, Kayla. So tonight when we go to bed... I'm going to send you a message. And then when you wake up, you try and remember what the message was. Is that message going to be, will you please remember to record that damn ad? 
no, because hopefully <laughs> you'll do that before you go to bed. We don't know. We'll see. But there will be a message. All right. And and you you write it down if you get it or if you think you know what it is. And then next week on the podcast, All we'll right. see whether or not you got the message. In fact, I'm going to send you the same message every day until we record next. All right. I will keep a dream journal. All right. Do All it. Right. Um, there are also past life dreams. And this connects to a few stories like you have told. I love past life dreams. Dreams of other lifetimes, and they're just what they sound like. It's more like a memory than a dream. They're not disjointed in any way like other dreams can be. They seem like whole stories with characters, styles of dress, language, time periods consistent throughout. I've never had one, but I really want one. A past life dream? Yeah. I don't need, I have a hard enough time with this life. I don't need more. I just want to (laughs) know. I don't think I'm new. I think I've been here before. I just want to know what I did before. Was I, I basic? I was a raccoon. You were a raccoon. I feel like if I was anything, I was probably a cat. I was a mongoose. You can't be a mongoose. You're a dog. Can I be a mongoose dog? I mean, I had a stuffed animal I called Puppy Bear because it looked like both a puppy and a bear. I was quoting Invader Zim. <laughs> All right. And then there is clairvoyant real-time dreams. Okay. So clairvoyance means clear seeing. Uh-huh. And it is receiving various visual impressions and images, either awake or asleep, while dreaming. Clairvoyance differs from pre- precognition. Precognition. The precognition. Precognition. In that it isn't usually foretelling of the future, per se, but it has more to do with what is taking place at that moment. This is what makes it connected to our Wyoming death ship. These tales from the men that had to do with things that were happening at the time they saw the ship. The sudden passing of the first man's fiance, the second man and the house fire, mm-hmm. or the hanging of a friend at the time they were actually at the gallows. You know what that reminds me of? In Practical Magic, when they do the phone tree, mm-hmm. and then they're like, I swear to God, I heard my daughter crying from halfway across town. And then she was like, there's a little witch in all of us. <laughs> I just like Nicole Kidman in that movie. I love that movie. <sighs> I need to watch it again. Anyway, sorry. So I guess the question here is, is the death ship of Flat River really a ghost ship? Because that's what, when you search it, when you search like famous ghost ships, mm-hmm. this comes up pretty frequently. Or is it a common thread between three or more that may have not reported it? Mm-hmm. People that have experienced clairvoyant dreams. So if you go with the idea that a lot of psychic dreams include round objects, could it be that there's a lot of like clairvoyant real-time dreams that involve ships or other modes of tra- transportation? Like, think like the river sticks leading you into the next life. Like, is this something where this ship is maybe a common theme and then maybe there's more ships or there's something else and this just so happens to be this area? I mean, we've all heard of daydreams. How many times have our brain wandered off while doing mindless tasks at work while on a walk? All the time. 
all every, the time. Every day. Okay, are you are you saying that this it's like there's round objects and then sometimes there's also ships? No, because I'm, no ships no. don't have wheels. <laughs> First of all, they have a, a steering, steering wheel. wheel. <laughs> so nuts to you on that one. <laughs> I'm just picturing a big masted ship with like wheels on the side. And you know what? Parade floats are sometimes ships that have wheels. So second point, Kayla. Next up, <laughs> I was saying that we were talking about the different classifications of dreams. And they were saying oh. that the psychic dreams usually have like a spherical object in them. Oh, and then clairvoyant. I'm saying like maybe clairvoyant real-time dreams have a tendency to have some sort of mode of transportation in them. That's what uh, I was getting at. Ah, uh, like very similar to what you said about, you know, the boat on the river sticks. Like they're just happened to see their loved one passing on. Like, is this another boat. river sticks type scenario? And it just so happens to transport to the closest body of water. I, yeah, I mean, okay. We haven't had a report of the death ship that I can find in over a hundred years. But does that mean that others have experienced this dream and never known who to report it to? Or are they so stricken with grief at the loss of a loved one to bother to report it? I mean, I wouldn't know who to tell that to. Exactly. Other than you. Ex- like, Yeah. So that was the conversation I thought it was interesting to. I'm not saying that I fully believe it. My brain was just like going in the, all these directions where I was like, man. What how, could it mean? Like. But how interesting would it be if we know that there's connections between other types of dreams, how interesting would it be if this is just like one more thing that connects other people together? It's sad and tragic, but it's also like if these three dudes, I mean, it doesn't sound like it, but we don't know them personally. If these three dudes were more uh, aware and sensitive Mm -hmm. than other people might be, and then... Like that, that's how they knew and that's how it came to them. I think it's very interesting because what are the likelihoods that three people, what, when was the first one in the 1860 something? I was going to say the mid 1800s. And then 1887 and then 1903. What are the odds? Right. That they would basically report the same thing because 1903 is not as if these fucking Googling. Yep. Like, and that occurrences that happened to point out. That last guy didn't know about the other two. Right. How would he? Now, full, you know, skeptic face on. Okay. I love it. Skeptic face. I mean, we say that these are reports, but there's no way to prove that these are eyewitness reports. We're going on faith there. So, I mean, I suppose one guy could have made the whole thing up, but that just seems. But you said it was in a journal. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't. I don't know 100%. I just, I'm not doing my skeptic job if I don't say something like that. Okay. 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 So, on a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what are you going to give the Wyoming death ship or the death ship of Platte River? First, I have to know the criteria. Are we talking about it being a ghost ship or are we talking about it being a clairvoyant symbol? I'm going to say... Based on that whole article, I'm going to say let's go on it being a clairvoyant real-time symbol. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two. Two? Okay. 
Yeah. No, I re- yeah, I respect that. I okay. respect that. <laughs> I, really I mean, also, there's no, there's no reports of it, again, happening in the last hundred years. I was going to go just like a three. Reports, though. Like, to who? Are you going to call the police and be like, oh, my God, I saw a ship. I knew that my wife was dying slash dead because I saw it on a big ship that came rolling out of the fog. <laughs> I was just, I, I, I was going to go with a three. Just middle ground, because I honestly don't know, but I do think it is an interesting way to think about things. Uh, Yeah. I think that if you would ask me whether or not I thought it was an actual ghost ship, I think I maybe would have given it a bit of a higher one. But, again, I feel like ghost ship would be like an echo or a ghost. Like, we don't know what the ship would be. We don't know what they're, like, I don't think there was any ship sailing on that, like, big ship sailing on that river. So I don't know what it would be the ship of, like, the ghost of what ship. That's why I leaned towards the going with the clairvoyant dream thing. Okay, we're going to have to do some research to see about the shipping history of this area and whether or not there were big ships. Because if there were big ships at some point, clearly something happened in the winter because there's frost everywhere. True enough. And, um, or maybe early fall. Because, you know, sometimes the fall gets frosty and then there's fog. At least there is in Duluth. Um, Maybe it's just a cold day in the lakes of hell. Yeah. Hell has lakes? Uh, Yeah. According to Chuck Palahniuk, there's a lake of cum in hell. Well, that's gross. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that information. I I, I just... those books are fucking weird. Anyway, that's a visual. What do you got for me? <laughs> uh, tonight, I'm going to tell you about Greystone Mansion and Gardens in Beverly Hills, California. Ooh, Beverly Hills. That's where I want to be. Gimme, 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 gimme that story from Beverly Hills. You know, I have not thought about that song in like a literal decade. I love that song. Who sings that? Weezer. Weezer. And everybody was like, oh, they sold out. I was like, fuck you. That song is amazing. It's like satire. Don't even care. Don't even Don't even care. I don't even care if it's satire or not. If it is satire, awesome. If it's not, I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, Greystone Mansion. All right. All right. Wait, so mansion and gardens, you said. Mansion and gardens. Now okay. it's called Greystone Mansion and Gardens. All righty. All right. So architect Gordon Kaufman, who was actually pretty popular between 1920 and 1940 for other projects like the LA Times building, multiple buildings at the California Institute of Technology, as well as the Hoover Dam, et cetera, et cetera. So Gordon Kaufman, he designed this 55-room Tudor-style mansion for oil tycoon Edward L. Doheny. Sounds like the setup for, like, a, 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 a like 60s sitcom. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I actually didn't notice, because I didn't really go that far into Edward L. Doheny, because I didn't really care about him. The story is not actually about him. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he is from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And But yeah, he was an oil tycoon. He really hit it big. He was very, very rich. And so he decided to give, uh, as a gift to his son for his wedding, Edward Ned Doheny Jr., this this luscious mansion on this big plot of land in Beverly Hills. The Beverly Hillbillies. 
And when this 46,000-square-foot residence was completed in 1928 to the tune of $4 million, which in today's money would be $68,623,584, at the time of its completion, it was the most expensive home in all of California. Okay. Okay. Big money, this man. All right, so the family of seven, which consisted of Ned Doheny, his wife Lucy, and their five children, they moved into Greystone Mansion, which was at the time known as Doheny Estate, at the end of 1928. Five months after moving in, on February 16, 1929, Ned Doheny, 35 at the time, and his longtime friend and assistant, Hugh Plunkett, were found dead in a guest bedroom in the east wing of the mansion, Victims of an apparent murder-suicide. Fuck. And the whole thing ended up being a bit scandalous. So according to a 2019 article in the lineup by Elizabeth Tilstra, most of the story that was relayed to the police came from Ned's wife, Lucy. Quote, she said that Hugh had let himself into the mansion with his own key and made his way to the East Wing. She said she wasn't alarmed by this until she heard a single gunshot. Lucy then called the family doctor, not the police, notably, uh, E.C. Fishbow, and the two approached the East Wing together. Outside, they allegedly found Hugh holding a gun and looking distressed. He immediately rushed into the bedroom and another shot was fired. When the two entered, they discovered the bodies of both men, unquote. Okay, so the listeners couldn't see, but about halfway through that, I, I started know. making a face. You were like, what? I so know this. Beverly Hills. Uh-huh. Is that near Hollywood? Yes. Okay. Remember that story you told, like, a year ago? And there was a different Hollywood-style, like, murder, and the wife also called somebody else, not the police? I don't remember that. Once I do it, I don't remember. Oh, my God. That's going to bug me. I'll come up with it later. It's going to bug me. Well, you you let us know. Okay. Uh, or, hey, listeners, if you remember what the heck story that was, you could also let me know. You, she just doesn't want to do the research. <laughs> I don't want to listen to past episodes of us sounding stupid. All I'm saying is we listen to ourselves talk a lot. <laughs> Girl, for real, though. <laughs> All right, so it wasn't until after Lucy and the doctor found both men deceased that the two called the police. Mm, So special, so special. And when they arrived to question the pair, their witness testimonies appeared to have been rehearsed, and the sequence of events seemed to be, quote-unquote, shaky. Well, yeah, so they had to get their stories straight. Yeah. 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 So, for one, the bodies appear to have been moved from their original placements. Allegedly, the doctor attempted to revive the men who were both shot in the head. (laughs) Two, although the shots were fired between 11 and 11.30 that night, the police had not been called until 2 a.m. Okay. And three, Mr. Hugh Plunkett, quote-unquote, unalived himself when he shot himself in the back of the head. Seems difficult. Yeah, not the most traditional or easy way to unalive oneself. And, yeah, I, I'm, this whole thing seems sketch city. Sketch city. That is what they said. They're like, bro, 
this is Sketch City. I don't know about this. However, within just a few short days, the witness testimonies of Lucy and Dr. Fishbaugh had been concluded as fact, and the case was declared closed. Concluded as fact, really? Yeah. There was a brief media flurry about the ordeal, and then just like that, folks stopped reporting on it. This alleged murder-suicide of the son of one of the wealthiest men in the country. Yeah, nope, not buying it. That's not suspicious. buying it for a second. That's weird. So after everything was considered case closed, both Ned and Hugh were buried. Hmm. It gets weirder. So okay, both, okay. Yeah, it, it continues to get weird, y'all. So both Ned and Hugh were buried close to one another in the Forest Lawn Cemetery, which per the lineup by a uh, lineup article by La, uh, Elizabeth, <laughs> which per the lineup article by Elizabeth Tilstra was pretty suspicious in and of itself. And the reason why is that the Doheny's were a Catholic family. And especially at that time, folks who unalive themselves were not allowed to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. So, although the official story was that Ned had been murdered, the decision to bury him as well as near his alleged murderer in a secular cemetery seemed to imply that perhaps the family did not believe the story that Lucy told the police. Yep, yep, I could see that. And perhaps they were under the impression that Ned had unalived himself after all. I don't know where on Ned's head he had been shot. I just know that Hugh was shot in the back of the head. Okay, okay. Now, even though the press had stopped reporting on the closed case, uh, doesn't mean the old rumor mill out there in Hollywood wasn't a millin'. Get the old rumor mill wasn't a millin'. <laughs> One rumor that gained traction was that Ned and Hugh best friends, and work associates. And they were roommates. Were actually lovers. History hates lovers. And their deaths were some uh, were some sort of like mutually assured destruction related to, quote unquote, the shamefulness of their relationship. Which would be very sad if that happened because yes. that's not shameful. You guys do you. And then there was another rumor that... Actually, Lucy had been the one who had done the shooting because she walked in on Ned and Hugh having relations. Fucking. Yeah, I said relations. I said fucking. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) uh, though realistically there is a more reasonable explanation, Ned and Hugh were actually at the center of a national corruption scandal. I like that that's more realistic than they They were were lovers. Yeah, no, you just wait. Okay. So in a 2002 LA, LA, mm, I'm getting so excited, guys. (laughs) So in a 2002 LA Times article, historian Richard Rayner explained the context of the situation. Quote, oil discovered in 1892 near the La Brea Tar Pits by Edward L. Doheny, Ned's father, drove the great LA boom. By the early 1920s, Doheny was one of the richest men in America. In 1922, he sent his son Ned and Ned's chauffeur, Hugh Plunkett, to Washington, where they handed $100,000 in a black leather satchel to Interior Secretary Albert Fall, and then in exchange, Doheny got the lease on a naval oil reserve worth some $100 million, 
in 1922 times. And all of this came out as part of the Teapot Dome scandal, which actually brought down Warren Harding's administration. They were legitimately in the middle of a a national scandal. A legit scandal. Like, that's not a rumor. That's a real scandal we know about. Yeah, apparently it was bigger than Watergate. I still don't know what Watergate is, and at this point I'm afraid to ask. It's a scandal about something that Richard Nixon did. All I know. At Watergate Hotel. All I know is that people now take words and turn them into something gate. Oh, which gate? Yeah. This is Pizza Gate. Yep. That's all. That's like that's, nonsense. I have no idea. I know I'm dumb for that, but no. It, it, it encapsulates that Andy Dwyer quote of like, I don't know who this is. And at this point, I'm afraid to ask. That's how I feel about Watergate. Okay. Um, I don't think you're dumb. I also don't know what I just said is the extent of what I know about it. Okay. Okay. Um, and once again, I blame the Cambridge High Annie School District for not telling me exactly what it was. Whoever's high school, what up, what up? <laughs> So in 1929, the unstable Plunkett was due to testify as one of the ongoing investigations into this huge scandal. But on the night of February 16th, he and Ned Doheny were found dead on the floor of the bedroom and one of the Doheny's mansions, both having been shot in the head. So you're right. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So Baron Fitz, recently elected a district attorney, promised this full investigation into what happened. Mm-hmm. However, nothing happened of the investigation. Like I said, pretty much right away, they took what Lucy said and they're like, done, case closed. Obviously, this is what went wrong. And if they're willing to just hand satchels of cash to people, and we know that the police can be corrupt, who's to say they didn't just hand those police officers right. a big old a lot of cash? Right. So to look over back issues of the LA papers during this time is to receive a blunt lesson. I didn't realize I was still in the middle of this man's quote. Um, The case explodes, receiving a brief blizzard of press, and then nothing. The doors shut, the waters close over, and the official line is peddled. Plunkett went mad, shot Doheny, and then himself. It's a stunning example of power at work, unquote. So almost a year after her husband's death, Lucy remarried. And she and her husband, Leigh M. Battinson, continued to reside at Greystone Mansion, where she raised her children until she sold the grounds in 1955 to Paul Trousdale, who then developed the Trousdale Estates, a neighborhood of Beverly Hills, located in the foothills of the Santa Monica Mountains. And then the mansion itself was sold to Chicago industrialist Henry Crown, who rented it to various film studios. And I didn't really go into Henry Crown, because mm-hmm. other than him owning Greystone Mansion for a little bit, it doesn't matter. But I will say that hashtag fun fact about Henry is that he was a billionaire, okay. which in and of itself, not that interesting. <laughs> uh, but he did own the Empire State Building for 10 years, from 51 to 61. It's a really small amount of time to like own one of the most notable skyscrapers. Yeah, which was famously featured in An Affair to Remember, and then, in turn, in Sleepless in Seattle, when they reference an affair to remember. So, and also King Kong. Yeah. So, I mean, who doesn't love a 90s Tom Hank and Med- Meg Ryan rom-com? Me. So, you don't love it? No. Something wrong with you. <laughs> I've been told that before. 
Okay, so back to L.A. So Henry Crown had the property from 1955 to 1963. I don't really know what happened to him in the 1960s. He lost both the Empire State Building as well as the property he wanted to. Actually, he wanted to demolish it. Oh, shit. However, Beverly Hills, the city was like, no, don't do it. Um, And then they ended up purchasing the mansion in 1965, eventually turning the estate into a city park in the early 1970s. And then in April of 1976, the mansion was added to the National Register of Historic Places. And then no one can demolish it. Indeed. In the meantime, though, the city had rented the mansion to the American Film Institute for $1 a year. Holy crap. And they did that with the hopes that the institute would actually basically pay for all the repairs and upkeep. They were like, we'll rent it to you, but you have to take care of it in the meantime, but you can shoot all your movies and shit there. Uh, Because of this, the Greystone has had featured roles in many famous movies. Am I going to hear about some of them? Yes, but not until the end. Okay. Nowadays, Greystone is a public park. Visitors are invited to stroll through two public areas on the grounds, the beautifully maintained formal gardens and their centerpiece fountain, and the pool's and inner courtyard area, as well as the space that is used for quote-unquote cultural and educational activities, photo and commercial shoots, weddings, and public events, per the Love Beverly Hills website. Okay. So... It's not surprising that with such a violent beginnings, like I said, they the family was there five months yeah. before the murder. Um, the Greystone Mansion is said to be haunted. Indeed. Quote, from a paranormal perspective, the estate is extremely active, said author of Ghosts of Greystone and investigator Cleet Keith. And I'm just, I'm going to just tell you a little thing about Mr. Cleet Keith. Okay. He wrote a book. It has over 200-something stories of the hauntings of Greystone Mansion. And he does not give me access to it, and our library doesn't have it. So there are so many more stories that I couldn't find because obviously he's like, I'm going to hoard these. He did just release it in 2020. Okay, I get it. He wants to make his money. I totally understand. So (laughs) this is the information that I do have. Okay. So some... Folks have reported seeing a man in a black suit of the early 1920s fashion. Quote, two tourists walked up to me and asked me how they could get inside the mansion for the tour. When I told them that the interior is closed to the public, one replied, oh, because we saw a man in period clothing staring out the window and we thought he was a part of a reenactment tour, said Cleet in the mysterious radio podcast. In addition to this mysterious man in black, folks have also reported seeing Ned, Hugh, and even Ned's wife, Lucy. Okay. So per that article in the lineup, quote, at the end of her long life, 100-year-old Lucy moved into a 5,000-square-foot home where she dressed up every day, then sat, apparently waiting, in a wing-backed chair with her handbag. Some guessed that she was waiting for Judgment Day, claiming she felt guilty about whatever happened that night so long ago. Oof. Oof. Rough. Perhaps this is why, since her death, there have been claims of a ghost at Greystone Mansion leaving traces of lilac perfume in her wake. Unquote. So it appears that Lucy, after her death came back to haunt the mansion because she felt so guilty about lying about the situation that happened there. Yeah, I could see that. 
In addition to this, some folks have claimed to see a dark, malevolent figure floating along the windows, described as wearing a black robe, not unlike the Grim Reaper. Uh, it is said to float up near the ceiling, and, quote, whatever it was, it seemed to be checking us out. Oof. So some folks were on the outside, like, looking at the grounds. They looked up at the mansion, and they saw this thing floating, recognizing, though, that the we- the ceiling was probably pretty tall in mm-hmm. that room, and it was, like, up near the ceiling, and it was very, apparently, um, so Dementor-like. Unlikely to be a shadow. Yeah, in the quote when they were talking about it they also said you know maybe they tried to reason with themselves that because this is used for like movies and stuff like that maybe it could be a prop yeah however it seemed extremely realistic and also uh one of the people who saw it because there were two people who happened to see it and they were like oh my god did you just see that um they're like okay if it was for a movie why were there no crew there true true so yeah. And whether or not it was due to this Dementor-like phantom or some other paranormal activity, I'm unsure, but it's not unheard of that the activity in the house has caused people to quit their jobs, um, both folks who work on movies as well as during a 2017 tour of the house. Their, um, these folks' tour guide, Steve, said that there were at least two park rangers that he knew of that quit because things got too spooky for them. I can't say I blame them. I wouldn't quit. No, you would be like, I'm loving it. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But I could see why other people would. But staff and their tours are not the only ones who experience this activity. On the same tour, this Steve guy said that during the filming of National Treasure Book of Secrets, one evening after shooting, the sound man decided to leave his equipment on at night to see if they could catch anything on tape. Sure enough, in the middle of the night, there was a loud noise, like a gunshot, followed by something tipping over and then the sound of something being dragged across the floor. When Steve and the crew returned the next morning, there was no evidence of anything untoward, and neither the alarm nor the set had been disturbed. I want to hear that clip. I couldn't find it. Oh, I I figured, like, I figured we might not be able to, but I just want to hear it, you know. But I did listen to a podcast about this, and they actually knew this Steve guy that I saw referenced on this other website, mm-hmm. and I believe that they were, they heard it. Oh, cool. So there is secondhand knowledge that it does exist. Maybe. <laughs> um, a couple of fun facts. The movie There Will Be Blood is actually based on the life of Edward L. Doheny, Ned's father. So Daniel Day-Lewis won an Oscar for his portrayal of Doheny. And then a couple of things that were filmed in the Greystone Mansion. All right, let's hear it. So uh, Van Halen's Pretty Woman music video, Austin Powers in Goldmember, Batman and Robin. There was an episode of The Dollhouse that was filmed here. Gilmore Girls used the mansion as Chilton Academy. Oh, I know exactly what it looks like now. I know. Yay! It was in an episode of Knight Rider and an episode of MacGyver and two episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Spider-Man 1 through 3 had scenes here. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, The Big Lebowski, The Bodyguard, The 2006's The Holiday, The Muppets, it was Kermit's Mansion, The Witches of Eastwick, The Young and the Restless, There Will Be Blood, X-Men, 
And to bring it all back to a very recent episode, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. The music video by Meatloaf. Boom. Boom. Fuck yeah. I love that. That was Greystone Mansion. I'm sorry I couldn't give you more spooky things, but Cleet Keith. Be hoarding those things. He be hoarding them. He be gatekeeping the spooky stories. <laughs> and I know what you're all, y'all are thinking. Why didn't we just buy the book? Here's the thing. If we bought a book for every like thing we researched, I already have a book problem. Uh, I, I can't I can't afford this many books. One one book a week? No, it's it adds up. Look, I I looked. I actually did my research yesterday. Nice. I know. Steve was like, when is the last time that you actually researched a day in advance? I was like, I don't even know. <laughs> I always do it. I always do it the day of. Um, went on Amazon, tried to find it. My library didn't have it, so I couldn't read it. I didn't have time to get it delivered. And the audiobook was like $20. That's what I'm saying. We would not have enough money if we went with buying something every time. That's why know. the library, the public library system is so nice, but sometimes they don't have what you're looking for. They didn't have it. I looked. Yeah. Sometimes they don't. It was really sad. Otherwise, I would have just read it. Maybe. <laughs> I, was, I would have listened to it and then told you all the stories. On a skeptic scale, uh-huh. I'm going to go four. Oh, thanks. I'm thinking very likely that it's haunted. Uh, I'm very happy to hear that it's, I mean, this has nothing to do with my rating. Uh-huh. I'm very happy that it's Chilton. That makes so much sense. <laughs> you um, can see it. <laughs> I can see it now in my head. It all makes so much sense. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, that sketchy beginnings. Sketchy beginnings. And there were, there was a couple notes in a couple of my, like, very, like, trusted sources that yeah. I had that said that there were as many as six deaths on the property. Okay. But there was no information as to who. Well, either way, when you start off with deaths that, Within the first five months. Within the first five months, extremely suspicious and nobody makes any attempt to solve them. Yeah. Then I could see how business would remain unfinished. Yeah. And cause a haunting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I I think that they were killed probably because of the, the scandal. Yep. But I also think that they were probably also lovers. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm pretty sure that the two were lovers, but also they happened to be murdered (laughs) because of the scandal that had nothing to do with them being lovers. If you have your own (laughs) scandalous paranormal story to share with us, or or not scandalous, we don't need scandal. I love scandal. Give me some scandal. Do you watch scandal? No. It's good. You should watch it. But I literally Googled scandal plus haunting, and that's how I found this. (laughs) So if you have your own paranormal story you'd wish to share with us, you can do so by visiting our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab at the top of the page. You can also email us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com, or click the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name if you want that recognition, whatever you prefer. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Well, we want to thank you all for joining us this spooky Wednesday. Join us next week when we have a 
very special guest. Special guest. Love a special guest, and you'll see who that is next week when we announce it. Also, completely unrelated announcement. If you did not hear it, Kayla and I were just on a bonus episode of the Prophecy Girls where we did a table read. Of fear itself. It was so fun. I got to be Buffy. I'm Xander. It was so fun. And I also got to play against myself a bunch. Yeah, surprising amount. Surprising amount. A surprising amount. So you get to hear me talk like I'm a college girl and then I switch into frat guy number two and then I go back to being a college girl and then I'm back to frat guy number two. She's very good at it. Mm, Thank you. All right. Well, happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. We love and appreciate you. We do. It's true. Okay. Okay. Bye. The Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!